Uh, in the last session, we started the series on Christianity is Christ. By the way, the Hebrew word for Christ is Messiah, so that's why some translations have it as Messiah. Um, Messiah and Christ are the ways you say it in Australian English. I won't give you the Hebrew or the Greek because Australian English is the way to speak. <laughs> but we start off Christianity is Christ by asking the question, who is he? It's his question at the end of Mark 8 when he asks his disciples, firstly, who do people say that I am? And then you, who do you say that I am? And I pointed to how different the second question is because it tells you nothing about who Jesus is but everything about who the disciples were, who they had come to understand about Jesus, where they'd come in the process of their discovery of who Jesus is. And so I pointed to three difficulties for us. One, without the Old Testament, we don't understand Peter's answer because the, the phrase, the Messiah, the Christ, it's an Old Testament term. It's a Jewish term. It's not a Greco-Roman term at all. You've got to understand your Old Testaments to understand what it is we're talking about. Secondly, for us, Peter's answer is still the first question because for us, it's still about who people, in this case Peter, think not about who we think Jesus is. And so thirdly, the question for us still remains because we can answer Jesus' question, you, who do you say that I am, when we reveal who we actually think Jesus is. And I summed up people's answers under the four L's of liar, lunatic, legend and Lord to suggest that the first three answers, liar, lunatic, legend, are inadequate and to say that the last answer involves all of life, it involves changing everything there is in your life, in your world, because it's no longer your life or your world, it's his, which helps you understand why people are so resistant to that answer. Because it involves all of my life, no longer lived for me. And so the other three answers though totally inadequate, become much more attractive because we want to live our own life our own way. And so grasping the importance of our answer to the question, let's return then to Mark 8 to pick up where we left off in verse 29. For in verse 30 we find a strange twist to the events and Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Notice firstly, Jesus accepts their answer. You are the Christ. Don't tell anybody. He's accepting the answer by what he says. But secondly, he wants to keep it quiet. Now, just for a moment or two, talk amongst yourselves and come up with an answer for us. Why? Why would a king, a political aspirant, want to keep it quiet? Verse 31 shows his reasons because Verse, it says, he began. He began phase two. See, phase one, chapters one to eight, who is Jesus? Chapters nine to 16, why has he come? Notice what it says here. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. See that verse there in verse 31? He starts off, he began to teach them. Up until now, he hasn't discussed his dying. 
He hasn't discussed his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Up until now, he's just been proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. Repent, get ready, the coming of the king. The king is about to come, come. But now he began to teach them. And so verse, chapters 9 to 16 explains why he came. We, the readers, we've known since chapter 1, verse 1, that he was the Christ. And since chapter 1, verse 11, he was the suffering servant. So we already had some indications as to what's going to be happened. But the crowds, the disciples, they didn't know. Now the disciples know who he is. The crowds and the enemies don't necessarily. But still they don't know why he's come or how the Christ will come to rule the world, or how Christ will bring the kingdom of God into the world. They don't know how it's going to happen. So once the the disciples correctly identify him as the Christ, he began to tell them, not everybody, just the disciples notice, he began to tell them why he came and how he would become the Christ. How he'd become the messianic ruler over the world. How he'd become the king of kings. And when it says he began, this continues right through the next few chapters. Uh, This is the centre of the teaching to them. This is the kind of crux, this is the turning point of the whole gospel. But from here on in, the message is quite different. So look at chapter 9, verse 30. They went, out from, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Or look again at chapter 10, verse 32. 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he'll rise again. Or even in chapter 10, verse 45, when he discusses who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, he says, For the, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And not only is it the explicit teaching of what's going to happen, but the implications of how you live change from here on in. So he talks about how the little ones, the children, will be accepted into the kingdom of heaven, while the great ones are not accepted, are cast out. How the rich young ruler does not enter in, whereas the blind Bartimaeus does. He starts to explain the nature of the kingdom of God, why he has come And especially his death, his suffering, is now going to happen. Now, what he taught them, of course, was a complete shock to them. And and they just, they could not understand it. They were deeply troubled by it, in fact. I mean, how could the world ruler, the king of kings, the lord of lords, coming to his kingdom, the kingdom of God, no less, by assassination? Doesn't really make sense by being rejected and killed. Well, rejected could. You know, there might be a revolution and then a fight and a reform, etc. But but killed? Well, you can't rule the world from the grave. It doesn't make sense. I've never met Prince Charles. 
But, and I've never talked to him about it, but I guarantee he doesn't think he's going to become King of England by assassination. Right? His mother might be assassinated and then he becomes the king, but he can't be assassinated and become king. Uh, that's, not, that's not how it works. So you and I aren't so amazed. We're not troubled by this. We should be because we should read more empathetically than that. We're not troubled by it because we know what happened. We've, we've been spoiled by history. We know he was rejected, was crucified and resurrected. Well, at least we think we know what happened. I mean, the answer in every Sunday school question that has ever been asked is always the same, isn't it? The answer is either Jesus or Jesus died on the cross. Whatever they ask you, that's what you answer in Sunday school as a child. And generally, you're right, you see. And so we're not struck by what is being said. Jesus died on a cross. We'll think more about the cross in a little while sometime tonight, I think. But it doesn't affect us much. Look again at what Jesus taught them in verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said it plainly. <laughs> Though he said it plainly, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Notice he doesn't call himself the Christ. He accepts the title, but he now talks about the Son of Man. He doesn't talk about the Son of God. He talks about the Son of Man. It's a strange phrase. It's, it's a distinctively Jesus way. No one else calls him Son of Man. He always calls himself Son of Man. And it's an odd pattern of speech. There's, Jesus had a whole series of odd patterns of speeches which indicates the originality, the, the genuineness really of the documents that we're dealing with. That people didn't generally go around saying, truly, truly, I say unto you. No one else said that, but Jesus said it consistently, you'll find in John's Gospel. And it's just a manner of speech that is just distinctively Jesus. Son of Man is one of those. It, it can emphasise his humanity. There are three different usages to the, to the word, it can, or the phrase. It can emphasise his humanity. So in the Old Testament, you do see it a few times. Uh, what is man that you are that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. Or God speaking to Ezekiel says, son of man, stand up and answer me. It emphasises your humanity. In Aramaic, of which I do not know, but I am told, in Aramaic, it is one of the ways in which you can talk about yourself and the third person impersonal. We do have it in English with the use of the word one. One can talk about oneself if one wants to, but one sounds decidedly odd. It, it's the one who speaks about oneself like that is the one who has corgis and lives in big houses in England, right? And it just when one talks about oneself like that, it's just you know that's you know who he's talking about or she's talking about, but you think it's a, a weird way to talk. Well, son of man is like that in Aramaic. I understand it's the third person impersonal way of speaking of yourself and that makes sense of nearly every context that Jesus uses the phrase the son of man is going he's talking about himself they all know he's talking about himself but this kind of strange phrase but the third one of course is Daniel 7 if you'll turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7 
we have an extraordinary image there with a very important reference to Son of Man that is not like any of the others. Daniel 7, all the images of different kingdoms rising and falling, all kinds of beasts. And we read in verse 9. Give you a little time. It's always a little hard to find Daniel, isn't it, as you scroll through your phone or look up your table of contents or pretend that you don't need it. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. I looked then because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking and as I looked the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Well, it's a strange part of the Bible, the visions that you get in Daniel 7 and the chapters around about. In one sense, you, you can get lost trying to work out every detail. And what you need to do is not stand so close to the picture, but kind of stand back and look at the whole picture rather than up close and get lost with all the details. The scene is the scene of the judgment, the judgment of the world, the judgment of its nations. God the Ancient of Days, is on his throne. The books of judgment are opened up. The kingdoms are deprived of their powers. The nations are put down. And then suddenly, in the midst of this scene of judgment, as the nations are overthrown, out of nowhere comes a man, a son of man. All, all the nations are represented by beasts, but this is just a man, this son of man. He comes, the Americans would say, he comes out of left field. You know, it's just, you're not expecting this to be happening in the slightest. There's just a man turns up and he goes up. He comes to the Ancient of Days. It's not he comes down to earth. He comes up to the Ancient of Days in the clouds to God. And God receives, and God receives him and gives to him. So he receives from God what has been stripped of all the nations of the world. All authority, all dominion, all glory, all kingdom, all authority to be served by all peoples, all nations, all languages, all cultures, to be served by all people for all time. And that's the end of it. <laughs> There's no more about this. Who is he? Why was he given all the authority? Why does he have it for all time? When Jesus talks about the Son of Man, could he be thinking of Daniel 7? Put yourself back into the disciples' sandals. 
Would they have thought of Daniel 7 when Jesus spoke of the Son of Man? I don't think so. I can't imagine they would have. I mean, he's, he's in front of them. He's not riding in clouds to God. He's not ruling the universe. And what he's talking about is, I'm going to suffer, be rejected and be killed. Well, that doesn't sound like the Son of Man, does it? No, no. The second meaning would be the meaning. He's talking about himself. In fact, it's so obvious he's talking about himself, you wouldn't even think about the third meaning as a possibility. So Jesus from here on in keeps calling himself Son of Man, Son of Man. He did it once or twice before this back in chapter 2, but it's really from now on he calls himself Son of Man. But of course, what Jesus meant and what people heard were two different things. For Jesus actually meant Daniel 7. Jesus identified himself as that man to whom all the kingdoms and power and glory and dominion of the universe is going to be given to for all time. That's what he was talking about. That's not what they wouldn't hear. It comes to its climax and clarity in chapter 14 when Jesus is being tried before the, uh, before the high priest. Chapter 14, if you look there, he's before the council. Chapter 14, verse 60, 61, 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that the men testify against you? But he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? And Jesus said to him, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. <laughs> That's who Jesus meant. Jesus knew Daniel 7. Jesus used the Daniel 7 phrase to talk of himself in such a way that the disciples wouldn't understand what he's talking about. And they didn't. He knew and meant that Christ was the Son of Man who was going to rule the universe in the eternal kingdom of God. But the way to his kingdom was not by military power, it was not by economic dominance, it was not by cultural imperialism. The way to his kingdom was by suffering, was by death and resurrection, was by so fully paying for the sins of the world that not even death could hold him, and so rising from death, to be given the kingdom in the judgment of the world. All this, of course, was the surprise Peter didn't understand. Point three in your outlines there. Like all disciples, Peter was thinking of this world only, of the Christ conquering Rome, establishing the Jerusalem at the capital of a world government. The Roman Empire was pretty impressive, friends. It did stretch from the north of Britain, Hadrian's Wall and all that, all the way across to the south of India. That is a big empire on anybody's understanding. It looked pretty invincible in first century Palestine. And of course, Palestine's in the middle of this massive world empire. And so when Jesus is coming to establish the kingdom of God on earth, well, you've got to get rid of Rome, haven't you? <laughs> That's, that must be obviously what you've got to do. So when Jesus explained the program of suffering, rejection, death and resurrection, we read in verse 32, and he, Jesus, said it plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Hey, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the king. 
You're not going to beat the Romans and rule the world by being killed. You're going to lead Israel out of our defeat, our shame and our ignominy, out of our captivity into this new world empire. Like Rome, you're going to rule from Britain to India. I mean, I didn't leave my family. I didn't leave my fishing business, my home and my friends, so as to help a loser lose. I, I, I did it because I thought this winner was going to win. Let me tell you how to become a king, because obviously you haven't got this straight. I've got a sword, and I'm sure the other blacks have got a sword as well, and we can gather together and we will... Can't you just hear this silly man? You're the king, let me tell you how to be the king. Can't you just hear yourself thinking the same stupid thoughts, saying the same silly things, speaking about what we don't know and what we don't understand? You see, it wasn't Peter alone. Notice how verse 33, it says, Jesus saw the disciples. They knew it. Peter was only speaking for them. See, Peter didn't understand that Jesus came not to deal with the current foes, but to deal with the long-term foes. Not to deal with the political empires, but to deal with the spiritual empires. Not to deal with Israel's problems, but to deal with humanity's problems. Not to rule in the first century, but to reign supreme over all centuries. Not to satisfy immediate needs of food and clothing and shelter, but to overcome our long-term needs of sin and Satan and death and decay. See, back at his baptism, the voice from heaven linked those two passages, the world ruler, the suffering servant. As best we know, no one had ever linked those two together. The disciples hadn't linked them together. They, they, they just seem so contradictory, the conquering king and the nice nobody, the suffering servant. But Jesus always knew the way to the kingdom was by the cross. So, seeing the disciples with Peter, Jesus rebukes him sharply. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. It's a little startling to hear Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, rebuke so strongly. Satan, he calls him. That's pretty politically incorrect to call someone Satan, don't you think? It could even be taken as offensive. Possibly. But in the voice of Peter, Jesus heard the voice of Satan tempting him away from being the suffering servant to turn the stones into bread to impress with the miracle of jumping down from the top of the temple to be caught up at the last minute by the angels to bow down and worship Satan and be given the kingdoms of the world see each of Satan's temptations were not so much temptations to every man they were the temptations to the Messiah to go any way other than the suffering servant. And it kept coming back to him over and over again. As someone pointed out from John, John 6, you see, the temptation. He turned the few fish and few breads in enough food to feed 5,000. What were people's immediate reaction? Let's make him king. Yeah, 
any government that can feed multitudes out of just a few loaves is going to get re-elected. Even if your name's Trump, you'll get re-elected. You know, I mean, this is, this is a fantastic kind of king. Well, that's what Satan was tempting him to, turn the stones into bread. People will love you. Bread and games, that's all you've got to give them. Let them eat cake. History is full of replete of the whole stories of people who can keep power by providing. And there's the temptation. There's all kinds of ways to be king, but getting executed is not one of them. The temptation is to come to kingly rule, not by suffering for the sins of the world, not by the way of the cross, but by the ways of the world. We're always there for Jesus. And what Peter was saying was the very voice of Satan. But did you see the surprise that Peter didn't even notice? Peter never seems to notice that Jesus predicts he's going to rise again on the third day. Did you notice that? He hears Jesus is going to suffer and be killed. No, 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 that's not going to happen to you. Now, hang on, Jesus said, I'm going to rise on the third day. He just ignores it. Pays no attention to it. Peter puzzles over the suffering. We may puzzle over the resurrection. Why was Peter not puzzled by the resurrection? You see, because the resurrection was Old Testament teaching. It was equivalent to our way of saying going to heaven. From Ezekiel 37, from Daniel 12, etc., the Jews had come to believe that all God's people would be raised to new life in the judgment at the end of the world. And this was the great fight, for example, between the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection because they didn't believe in the prophets. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in any of the prophetic interpretation or reinterpretation of those five books. And so they rejected the resurrection. And Jesus had to show that the resurrection was back there in Exodus when he's arguing with the Sadducees. But the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. Jesus taught the resurrection, but he taught he was the resurrection. Let me show it to you because I think many of us in the 21st century, even in most Christian circles, do not see the impact of resurrection. We are clearer on the cross than we are on the resurrection. And so for us, he dies on the cross. Oh, and by the way, he rose from the dead. When in actual... Jesus is preaching the resurrection. And the gospel is preached all the way through the book of Acts, always mentions the resurrection and doesn't mention the death of Jesus other than as the precursor to the resurrection. And never do they preach the gospel by talking about Jesus dying for your sins. Though they believe it, and it's in the book of Acts, but never as an evangelistic approach. The resurrection is very central to the gospel not always central to 21st century Christianity. So bear with me as we take a little bit longer on this. Look, for example, at Luke 14.23. Luke 14.23. It's a really good verse, but it's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. So look back to verse 12, 13, 14, and you'll go to where I'm actually meaning. 
You need to change these notes here. Verse 12, he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now that's a little phrase we wouldn't use, is it? That's a funny little phrase there. But it's a way of talking about the judgment at the end of the world is the resurrection of the just. Well, keep going. Go across to John's Gospel, chapter 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5. Verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so is granted the Son also have life in himself and is given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See how the Son of Man is a figure of the judgment. And the judgment involves resurrection. And all are going to be resurrected at the end into judgment. Some will be resurrected into the judgment of eternal life. Others will be resurrected into the judgment of eternal death. But resurrection is a way of talking about the end of the world. Go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. Jesus could have come and stopped his death, but for reasons that have got to do with God's plan and helping people understand what the gospel's all about, he refrained and waited for him to die before he turned up. When he did turn up, his two sisters remonstrate with Jesus. Chapter 11, and I'm looking down, say, verse um, um, 18. Uh, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. Uh, that, I must say, is a verse that can be read with all kinds of different tones of voice. The drama people could use all kinds of exercises. Is, he, is she rebuking? Is she questioning? But she really is puzzled. Jesus knew he was dying. Jesus could have stopped him. Jesus healed people left, right and centre. Why didn't he come? My brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Problem, problem, problem. You've got a problem now. You know the end of the story, don't you? You know he's going to come out of the grave. You know Jesus is going to call him out. He's going to go. you know, Forget that. Think now. Think what Martha's thinking. I know you can do anything. And Jesus says, he's going to rise again. Now, what's Martha going to say to him now? Gee, thanks, I'll show you where the groom is. The tomb is groom. Groom tomb, that's a slip of the tongue, that one, Freudian. I'll show you where the tomb is so that you can actually do the resurrection act. Or, or frankly, you're so powerful, just say it here and he'll pop out anyway, wherever he is. No, look what she says. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
I mean, my brother was a good godly Jew. He believed in God. He trusted God. He's going to go to heaven. He's going to be resurrected. I know he's going to be resurrected. That, you're not telling me anything, Jesus, when you say he's going to rise on the last day. See, resurrection means go to heaven. Resurrection means in the judgment at the end of the world, you'll be saved. That's what it meant to them. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. Whoa, that changes the meanings altogether. What, what, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. And so he goes to the tomb where he weeps. Have you ever pondered about he, he weeps? I, I learned this as a memory verse as a child in Sunday school. We were told to learn any verse of the Bible we wanted to, so I went for Jesus wept because it's the shortest. And that tells you a lot about little boys and Sunday schools and sinners and me. Um, so I saw my very first memory verses. Jesus wept. I thought I was so smart. That's one of the most complicated verses that are in the Bible. Why did Jesus weep? He's standing at the tomb. He knows he's about to raise the, the raise Lazarus. But he weeps. I mean, he turns up at the tomb and everyone's wailing and crying. And he knows what he's about to do. Why didn't he say to them, stop, stop. I'm going to get him out of there. Start dancing and change the tune. You know, get your instruments. We, this is a happy day, not a sad day. Because that's what he's about to do, isn't he? But he joins them in their mourning and in their grief. Because he so hates death. He sees in death the judgment of God. He sees in the death of his, his friend the pain and suffering that is involved in the whole process. He joins, I heard a man the other day say, that you see the tears of God on the face of a man when Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. It's a very powerful verse, very important verse. Not to waste on stupid childish games. Jesus wept, for death is so awful. And then he raises him, come out, and Lazarus comes forth. But that's not the full resurrection. That just is demonstrating that Jesus is the resurrection. That death will not have the last word. That Jesus who stills the storm, Jesus who feeds the multitude, Jesus who, who, who heals the poor, who heals the sick, Jesus who drives out the evil spirits, Jesus is the king of life and death as well. Not even death can stand against this one. That's why he paused and waited for the man to die, to give the demonstration that death will not have the last word. Not when Jesus is concerned. But of course, poor old Lazarus, he died again later. In fact, poor old Lazarus, because he rose, he was raised from the dead. The Jews put a number out on him to kill him because he was an embarrassment to them. I mean, you raise from the dead in order to actually have to avoid being killed by people and then die anyway in order to be resurrected later. He's few men who have been raised as often as Lazarus. It'll be an interesting man to meet when we get to heaven, have a chat to him about things. But see what the resurrection is? 
It's the end of the world judgment, which comes with Jesus and his resurrection. He's the beginning of the end of the world. He's the one who's brought the judgment of God into existence. I'll give you one last one. Turn across to Acts with me. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I'm reading the ESV, and I'm going to misread it. And I want you to hear me misread it. Hands up those who've got the ESV. Uh, what have you basically? Hands up those who've got the NIV. That's the majority. Can someone give me an NIV and I'll misread that? And a big print. It's got to have a bigger print than that. I'm too old. This is an older version of NIV. Oh, this is the real NIV. Good. <laughs> 1984. I'll still get it wrong from this. Okay. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching uh, the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because of it, uh, it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Okay? All played. Now I'll read it again. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening and put them in the jail until the next day. What did I misread? Yes. It doesn't, it's, he wasn't, they weren't proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Look, look, look carefully. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You see how our thinking is different to their thinking, therefore we misread what's said, even though it's said plainly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely explicit that they were preaching in Jesus the resurrection. But we read Jesus' resurrection. Because we haven't understood that the resurrection is the judgment at the end of the world. And that with Jesus comes the judgment at the end of the world. With Jesus comes the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days to receive all kingdoms and all powers forever. So when Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and on third day rise from the dead, they hear, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and one day I'll go to heaven. But no, no, he said third day. Well, why didn't they think the third day you'll go to heaven? Because the number three, you see, we are very heavily mathematical in our thinking. We, we think three is somewhere between two and four. You know, I mean, we, we cannot think. But we don't always think mathematically. If you see a car going down the road and the number plate is 888, what does that tell you? It's a Chinese driver, isn't it, or owner? That right? Uh, why? Well, because eight has a symbolism to Chinese people that's not halfway between seven and nine. It's not a mathematical symbol. You'll never see a Chinese car going down the road with a number plate 444. Because? Yeah, four means death. <laughs> well, it doesn't. It means halfway between... <laughs> you see, number... You think, oh, well, the Chinese, they're very superstitious, aren't they? Right? I was in a hotel in Glasgow, new hotel. And I noticed that I was actually on floor 12, but the floor above me was floor 14. And I checked around on my floor, and 
Every room was there except for room 13. You're in 12, then you're in 14. Why? Because we Anglos have our number symbolisms as well. 13 is bad luck, is misfortune. Now, of course, it really is bad luck because the people in floor 14 think they're in floor 14 when they're actually in 13. So when the plane comes into the building at floor 13, they, they won't know because they think they're actually in... Anyway, don't worry about it too much. Is it? But in many often in the aeroplanes, you check out there won't be a row 13 in the aeroplane because people won't sit in row 13 because of... Numbers have symbolisms other than just mathematics. And they mean three was the number of salvation in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's a feel. I can't prove it to you, but I can read it to you. For example, Hosea 6 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. There's just these hints all the way through the Old Testament that three was their number of life and salvation, seven was their number of completion, three and a half was their number of a, a, a time period cut off because it doesn't get to seven. There's just these, you go into a cemetery and you look and you'll see a column that's kind of chopped in half, right? I mean, it's built to be chopped in half, but it's only half a column. What does that mean? Someone died young. You go check out and you'll find out it's a young person that's died there. A young man, young woman will have died. It's a symbolism that I can't prove it to you, but if you're inside a culture, you know it. If you're outside the culture, you think that's a bit odd. Right? And so we think, you know, people driving, I, I look and see people driving 888 and I think, <laughs> really? But if you're inside it, you would not buy a car with a number 444. It's just a cultural symbolism. Three is the, So when Peter says, when Jesus says, I'll rise on the third day, he's saying, I'll go to heaven at the end of the world, on the day of salvation. And so it doesn't mean anything to him. And that's why he, that's why he doesn't grasp what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus is bringing in the judgment of the world. The resurrection is about to start. The moment has come for the kingdom of God with God's King Jesus ruling eternity and this world. And that's why he was going to suffer. That's why he was going to die as a ransom for the sins of the people, as a sacrifice to save God's people in the great judgment that he was bringing into the world by dying and rising on the third day. The resurrection is not proof of God's existence, but the certainty of God's judgment by the Son of Man, who is going to rule the world in the kingdom of God with all authority over all nations for all time. So you see why Christmas misses the point? Santa Claus gives presents to good children. It couldn't be further from the truth of the gospel. The problem is not so much about the non-existence of Santa Claus. Well, I'm sorry if you didn't know. But the problem is not... The problem is about the judgment of God. Jesus didn't come into the world to reward good children. Jesus came into the world to save bad adults. He came into the world to die for sins. He came into the world to rise up, to rule the world in the judgment of God. He came into the world to become both Christ and Lord by death and resurrection. 
I mean, even if you don't buy the silly Santa Claus myth and only sing songs of Jesus' wonderful birth, you can still totally miss the point, especially as most of the Christmas carols are wrong. You know, in the deep, deep mid-winter, snow upon snow, number one, we don't know he was born in winter time because we don't know the date of the year. Number two, it hardly ever snows in, in Bethlehem. Right? I mean, it's just... English mythology. <laughs> it's just a nonsense. Most of the songs are nonsense. I mean, the, the wise men didn't turn up till several times. They, they were in a house by the time the wise men turned up. To have the wise men and the shepherds there at the same picture, it's just not right. It's just the stories, the, the ways in which we present Christmas is just wrong in so many ways. God didn't become man to make man feel good. He didn't come man to show how we as humans are to live. He didn't become man to exhibit his humility. God became man so that a man would die on the cross for the sins of the world and to rise again to establish the eternal kingdom ruling over all people everywhere forever. You see why he came? Takes us back to who he is. If he's a liar, a lunatic and a legend, or is he the Lord? Is he your Lord? For why he comes establishes the kind of Lord he is. <laughs> the nature of our relationship as our Saviour and Lord, as our eternal victorious Lord. We were created for him and he has risen up to rule over all of us forever. And so it determines the kind of response I have to him. As my saviour, I trust him with my life. As my Lord, I submit to him with my life. To trust him is to have faith. That's what it means. The word faith, it's a bad word. It just means trust. You trust him. Repentance doesn't mean feel sorry, means turn back and submit to him. So as my saviour, I trust him. As my Lord, I submit to him. And as the risen saviour and Lord, I have faith in him for my forgiveness and salvation and I submit to him for everything in life, work, marriage, friends, church, home, the way you drive your car, everything comes under his lordship. Because you submit to him as your Lord, just as you trust him as your Saviour. Who is Jesus, Lord and Saviour? Which is why he came, to be the Lord and Saviour. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world to save us. We thank you that he was faithful even unto death. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that he was righteous and death could not hold him. We thank you that in his resurrection, full and complete forgiveness of sins is given to us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that he has risen up to sit at your right hand in all power and authority, that you have made this man both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom we crucified. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for Jesus.
his victory and his conquest, his standing before the universe. We thank you, Father, that he sits in authority and power. Having made the full sacrifice for our sins, we thank you, Father, for him. And we pray for each other, Father, that each one of us may find salvation in him, may trust him for our eternal salvation, may trust him to redeem us from our sinfulness and our selfishness and our self-centered, may trust him to, to save us in the great judgment. And we pray for each other, Father, that we may submit to him as our Lord, as your Lord, as the Lord, that we may submit to him as our Lord in every aspect of our life. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.